This is nautical knowledge and nonsense. In this episode, I was lucky enough to interview NOAA commander Carl Rhodes. This interview was done on the day after his new promotion to commander with the NOAA Corps. It was a real pleasure to interview the person who nearly drove off the road from laughing so hard at some of my earlier episodes. Thankfully, he did not. Think of the disclaimer I would need. Anyhow, we had a great interview, and by the end, I honestly was considering leaving everything to go join the NOAA Corps. As always, we cover a wide range of topics, but after listening to this interview, you should have a good understanding of the NOAA Corps and its missions, what it's like to be on a vessel in Arctic and Antarctic voyages, and why you should never, ever let a family member poke a 5,000-pound elephant seal, even if they think it is dead. I hope you enjoy this interview. And Carl, congratulations. Congratulations yeah. on becoming a commander. Yeah, I'm promoted and stuff. It's fantastic. Um, takes a while for that to happen in the NOAA Corps, so pretty happy about that. Yeah, so so what does that mean, uh, being a commander? Like, I, I was kind of thinking about it, and I was thinking, is it, are you Captain Kirk in Star Trek Three when he gets back, and they're like, hey, congratulations, now you're an admiral, and you just hate life and don't get to go out on boats what does that mean exactly so yeah so uh commissioned military officer rank versus position is is, it's different it's not like all right so you're on a ship and they make you the captain and when they make you the captain you're in charge of the ship in the military they make you a captain and in the navy that's just a rank it's a rank of 06 officer six and in the army it's 03 uh officer three um captain the name captain so it it's more about how you get paid and the the organizational rank you have within the agency or the the service and it has a lot less to do with what your job however as i was explaining this to somebody else yesterday you could there could be jobs that require you to be a certain rank to qualify for so if you were in say uh the like you needed to be on the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, or work at the Pentagon. Usually those people are much higher up, so they're like admirals and generals, right? And commanders of ships are typically, depending on the size of the ship, they'll be commanders or captains, or maybe if it's a smaller ship, they might be lieutenants or lieutenant commanders. So it, it does have a little bit of a, a positional like qualification to it, but really it's much more about time and service and where your pay grade is. Okay. So I, I could be um, in the NOAA Corps, for example, um, as long as I've got my senior watch officer qualification and I have uh, the endorsement from my supervisors on shore uh, like ahead of me, I could be a commanding officer of a ship as a lieutenant commander or a commander or a captain. It just depends on where I am in that process of being qualified by those above me saying that, yes, this, this officer is ready to take command of that vessel. Whereas in the commercial world is do they have the license mm-hmm. and then do they have the endorsement of the company that's, you know, like that they're working for. Like you could be working on a ship as a first mate, but you have a master's unlimited license. Right. Right. But if your company says you're good to go, then they'll promote you up and make you the commanding officer. But in the eyes of the coast guard, as long as you got the license, you're good to go. Right. Um, in the eyes of the coast guard for us, as long as you have the commission uh, and the, the right, training endorsements then you're good to command a ship as well same with the navy 
the Navy's very similar to our, our system and the Coast Guard itself. Okay. All right, Carl, I want to try one thing real fast. I'm just going to do a little more troubleshooting here. Um, hold yeah. on one sec. Okay. Cool. Cool. All right, tech stuff out of the way. Oh man, I <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's it's a blessing. Well, you kind of like what we were talking about last night. Like it's it's a blessing and a curse, and some of it's good and some of it's bad. And <laughs> I've got some software that I use for. I, I got into uh, streaming game video game playing. Okay. And and uh, it's that was a learning curve. I just like the the people that go online on Twitch and make money doing that. Man, that's a job. It's a legit wow. job. It's a very technical job, and then you have to have charisma, personality. Super impressive. All right. Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a that's a topic I don't think I've ever covered in any of the interviews so yeah. far. Is video game? What kind of games do you like? Oh, I like all kinds of games. A lot of uh, space and sci-fi stuff because I'm, I'm a big fan of that genre of books, and and so I got into like, you know, like playing video games that relate to topics that i liked in books you know cool do you ever uh, you ever play kerbal space program oh i had a friend that did that uh, when i was on the polar star mm -hmm. uh, going down to antarctica he was doing that and he's launching rockets and i watched him <laughs> for like an hour because i didn't have it because you couldn't download it right he's like oh that's a cool game i'll download it i guess in four months <laughs> and try it but uh, i ended up not um i had other stuff i was doing i like space stuff and so elite dangerous is the one i play pretty frequently get a fly they they recreated the entire milky way galaxy using information they had from uh nasa and they procedurally generated with statistics of how many planets will look like this and how many planets will be composed of this and and then you could fly to them and land on them and explore them and when you explore a planet it's literally a whole planet oh wow take you years to walk around it if you it's it's crazy they did a really good job with it and so i I kind of got into that. That's incredible. All right. Well, yeah. Maybe Th things I did to keep my, to keep occupied when I wasn't, you know, like on the ship and doing other stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, it makes you now. Well, that's, that's a good, well, so, so I guess we in should... addition to all the books I read, you know? Yeah. Sailors so, read a lot. They do. It's true. I definitely read a lot on voyages. Um, what, uh, if I, and by voyage, I mean, nothing like months long, like, like a few days, you yeah. know, a week or two at a time. So, so you must have a, a much, I, I mean, take aside, you know, pull aside from the video games. And obviously we have, you know, international communications, which you were still obviously able to do on your vessel. Um, you, you must have a better understanding than most people of what it was like, you know, to be a mariner back 200 years ago, you know, heading up to yeah, the Arctic. So so when I was on the Polar Star going down to Antarctica, mm -hmm. uh, we were much more cut off than I'm used to. So we, even when I joined NOAA in 2006, we were able to do email pretty frequently from the ship. Like we'd have to even, like we'd upload an email and we'd wait, and then eventually the ship would send it off, and then we'd get a bunch of emails in, and they'd all come in, and and you could see them on your computer. So that was like pretty wild. I was like, wait, I get email on a ship? What the hell? This is crazy. But um, as technology progressed you know like you have like more live internet you actually have a live internet feed on our on our ships now albeit the speed is slow and you can't really use it for personal stuff but you can use it for work-related stuff although you know like a lot of people are able to use uh facebook or whatever or connect with their cell phones and even text each other and being able to text home from a cell phone 
while you're at sea and just stay in communication with loved ones and friends is just huge. A lot of people, that's their main morale, um, which is pretty cool. I, I, I like that aspect of it. However, it's much more freeing when you don't have a lot of that, like, cause then you're like really sailing. Right. And so when we went down on the polar star, we did not have that access, um, going between Tasmania and McMurdo station and, and uh, Ross Island it to the point that we were so isolated at one point from the rest of the world that the nearest humans to us in any direction were the astronauts in the international space station for the 20, <laughs> for the 20 minutes that they were overhead. Oh, and, cool. And then it also gave me a little bit of a jump into like, and so like thinking about the old whalers that were out in the Pacific chasing whales, realizing that, you know, help of any kind is thousands of miles away at any point because we were the United States Coast Guard on the Polar Star. Right. And, you know, usually I'm always like, all right, the Coast Guard's so far away. If I need help, you know, like helicopters have this range and they can get out here in like how many hours. I always have that back in my mind. Because in case something goes wrong, right? But when you're it, when you are the United States Coast Guard and you are <laughs> 1,500 miles away from anything, and anything goes wrong, you're like, "This is it. This is us." And it kind of gives you, like, honestly, it's 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 a lot like how I imagine an astronaut feels because you you're on your own. Whatever you've got on that ship are the resources you have, and you have to figure out how to fix things with what you have. And yeah, it was it was quite quite a thought process of like, wow, I'm, I'm further from home than I ever have been, you know? <laughs> and, and it happens to a lot of, I think a lot of sailors get to that point. It's different, different voyages, different locations. You're like, Oh man, we're out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll be interesting. You know, when Elon's, uh, Elon Musk's, uh, Starlink is, is fully yeah. up and operational. And I guess they're planning other, other companies are planning other constellations and governments too. Um, It'll, it'll be interesting psychologically because I, I could definitely, you know, I, I hope to someday sail around the world with my family and like, yeah, the concept of having continuous internet like this, just, it's totally different. You know, it's a totally yeah. different thing from when you talk to people that sail around the world in the seventies and all they got literally is a sextant. That's their, that's their primary means of navigation, you know, and, and paper charts and, and it's you know, part of me just wants to like, oh, can we can we just shut off the all all of it, just shut it off, and then turn it on when we absolutely need it, you know? Yeah. Um, or just have passive systems, mass, you know? Yeah, when I was working for Mass Bay Lines, I had access to a chart of Boston Harbor, a little Furino radar, and a compass and a VHF radio. And that was my navigation tools. Then I, I show up to the NOAA fleet. Now I have, in addition to you know, two radars, an X-band and an S-band, four or five VHF radios, a gyro compass and a compass, sometimes two gyro compasses, Ectus, Noble Tech or Coastal Explorer and AIS. Yeah. And it holds GMDSS, uh, you know, emergency global marine uh, distress and safety system sitting behind me. Like, it's just like, wow, I, I have all of these tools now and I've gotten used to those. And yeah, people used to just use a compass, a sextant, and a chronometer. Yeah. You know? Totally random thought. But have you ever seen that commercial about the German Coast Guard guy? Who's, <laughs> you know the one, right? Yeah. What are you thinking about? Like, that's all I could think. Is like, you got all this technology, and then, like, 
oh, but I don't know what to do. <laughs> so exactly, um, exactly. That's that's such a funny commercial. Um, so now, do you think having so having all that internet, having all the technology, uh, especially the internet and the, the texting, like you said, has, did mm-hmm. you see a difference in crew dynamics? Like, was it before like crews would get together and, and maybe do more interactive crew stuff? Before that, like, is there so, a conscious difference there that you noticed? So it's interesting because uh, on on my ship, the the last one I was on, the NOAA ship Fairweather, we were up in Alaska, and a lot of us have jobs that are related to working on computers, and administrative, and then there's other crew members that are not, and we'd also have bouts where we just had really bad internet. So none of us are using the internet for entertainment. Okay. So you still see the crew getting together in the mess. And, you know, playing cribbage or uh, actually the technology is interesting. We, I saw a lot of my crew members get together and do Wii games. So we had a lounge area and they would do like uh, Wii Mario Kart or Wii Bowling, <laughs> you know. And so that was pretty popular in the evenings. And it got the crew together to do stuff. Uh, this last couple of years with COVID, we, we had to socially distance even while on board. Oh my gosh. And so that kind of definitely, definitely that had a bigger change in the dynamics of having people together and doing stuff than the, the lack or addition of the internet. Now, how long did you have to socially distance? Like I'm assuming um, on a four month was, voyage, you don't have to worry about it after a month or two. right? <laughs> so, so we had to be full masks on after we'd been, uh, tested mm-hmm. um, prior to getting on board after a seven-day quarantine with uh, two PCR tests, negative PCR tests. We'd wear it for a while. We were wearing our masks for 14 days. After wow. 14 days, we could relax our, our uh, restrictions and get rid of the masks, and then we could, like, hang out a little bit. But, like, before the 14-day, we were, like, six feet apart at any time unless we absolutely had to be near each other. So was there like a big party or celebration? Like when that, the mask was going to ceremony? Everybody's on different rotations and different watch schedules. So you're not seeing like, like the whole ship get together. But like, I would have totally gotten the whole ship together. Like mask off, spring break. uh, (laughs) Well, a big one was putting, because we had every other chair missing from the galley and then we had eaten shifts. Mm -hmm. um, Because there just wasn't enough room if you take half the seats out. But bringing the seats back in and getting people back in people were hanging out in the galley a lot longer than, than they used to and talking to people. And so, yeah, there was definitely an increase in, in social, uh, um, socializing after that, which is, which is really awesome. Like getting people, seeing people get together again was, it was very good for morale. Gosh, I, I, I'm now I'm, I'm, I hope someday some psychologist or, you know, somebody doing a thesis, uh, trying to think of a thesis point, like that'd be a great uh, project, you know, for yeah. just analyzing people and, and, uh, you know, kind of use that micro micro, uh, culture to, you know, tie that into the greater world. But, uh, anyway, you yeah, were talking absolutely. about, you were talking about jobs. So, so let's talk about some of your, your yeah. history here. Uh, Cause you have quite a, quite a long and colorful history. I'd yeah. Say. So, um, it's probably best to start kind of at the beginning. So I grew up in Southwest Colorado that has no ocean, right? Yeah, the uh, great Mar- father, seafaring but... state of Colorado, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's a pioneer state, right? And yeah. so uh, I think that pioneering spirit lives very strong in the mountains of Colorado. And my father and grandfather, both, and uncle, were in the Navy. They were farmers in Nebraska when, you know, the dust, right after the Dust Bowl, and, and it was a hard life and a way to get out of it 
at least temporarily, was join the Navy. And my grandfather was in World War II. Um, he saw a lot of action in the South Pacific. Uh, my father and uncle were both in Vietnam, and in various ways that they were engaged. Um, my father on destroyers and my uncle um, inland in the jungles as a Navy uh, support uh, radio men for SEAL teams and oh, wow. other fun stuff. Um, they had very much a... a, a a, a wartime Navy background. And so I, I was, I grew up listening to their stories and there was no ocean. I was always fascinated by science and the, and the, and the ocean and not having one, it made me even more fascinating. You know, like I couldn't just go out and see it. So like it was that thing over the, over the horizon that I couldn't see. And so in my high school counselor's office, a flyer showed up and it was come to Maine Maritime Academy sail on this research vessel for the summer for a couple of weeks and, and learn about the ocean. I'm like, I want to do that. My parents had like, I don't know how they scraped together the money to get me a flight and then pay the tuition for this, but they did. And they, they were super, super encouraging of me to do it. And I went out there and I spent two or three weeks. I can't remember exactly on the coast of Maine playing around on a small little 80 foot research, 80, 90 foot research vessel and learning about the ocean and science. And I also, at the time, it was at Maine Maritime Academy, and I fell in love with that school and that campus, and I felt very at home there. And so when it came to me to apply for colleges, that was the, one of the, like, three colleges I applied to. And then I got a, an early acceptance. Um, they, they came back to me before everybody else and says, we want to early accept you. And I'm like, absolutely. And, <laughs> and so I said yes. And my parents are like, you know, this is going to be quite a financial burden, but you'll have to take loans and we'll help you out whatever we can. But, you know, like we can't help you out a lot. And it's like, I don't care. I'm going to do it. And they're like, good. We think you should. And I did. And ultimately, um, I got there and they handed me a T-shirt. And this is the greatest thing. I'll never forget this. On the back of the T-shirt had a had a, an image, silk screen image of somebody jumping off of a ship with a life jacket on in the proper, you know, position and falling. Right. And they said, Maine Maritime Academy, where the adventure begins. And <laughs> they were not wrong. That was exactly going to that school. That's where all of my seagoing adventures began. And I ended up uh, doing the marine science program. I was uh, wanted to be a scientist, um, uh, like a marine biologist. And while I was studying that, I realized pretty quickly that the laboratory was not the place that I wanted to spend all my time. I was working on the waterfront um, on the research vessel there, the Argo, Maine, as a student and taking kids out to teach them, like students from high schools, like they would come up to the academy and they'd go out on the boat and we'd be crew as deckhands and do rock dredges and then pull stuff up. And now we're, we're college students, so we know more of what they're pulling up. And so we're telling them like, well, that's a nudibranch or sea star or sea urchin, you know, like telling them about stuff and telling about the area. And so we were educators and deckhands. And I was like, man, this is, this is what I really like. And then the, the captain, Captain Don Bradford of the Argo, uh, he was really encouraging. He actually encourages quite a bit to do whatever you want, like learn. If you want, if you want to come down and help us install a piece of equipment, we'll, we'll show you how to do that. And so I got really interested in the, in the ship life of a scientist. And so my junior year, I decided to stick around the academy for two extra years and get a Coast Guard license because it's like, you know, down the road, I'm going to have this 
science degree, but I can augment it with this Coast Guard license and 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 work on boats. And I want to work on boats. And so so I did. And I stuck around for two more years. I went to college for six years. Walked out with uh, two degrees, a minor, and a Coast Guard license. And and I was like, well, now I got to find a job. And luckily, part of my summer co-op uh, internship that I did through the small vessel program at Maine Maritime, I had to pick a company and go work for them for the summer. And uh, Captain Jay Spence from Mass Bay Lines interviewed me, looked at my resume, and he's like, I'd like to offer you a job right out of like this this career fair. <laughs> and so I went down to Boston, Massachusetts, a uh, big city. I was, I'd never lived in a big city before. And... I got to work on his boats as a deckhand, and within almost about a month, they promoted me to mate because I had this other experience at school. Like I actually had experience on small ships and and other boats. And Maine Maritime was really good about teaching you like the basic fundamentals of of being a deckhand first. Like you can't be a mate until they make you a good deckhand, and then from there you've got all the skills to build up. And it was great because they really focused on that. And so those skills really lended into me being able to advance. And so I worked for Mass Bay Lines for about uh, that summer. And I came back once I graduated with a license. And then I, I moved up to captain. And they had eight different boats of different propulsion types and sizes and shapes. They had uh, catamaran, monohulls. They had uh, single screw, quad screw, twin screw. They had a... 65 foot boat with a flat bottom with inboard outboard dr- drives on Volvo, uh, Volvo, Volvo Pentas. And those would, the drives would actually back themselves up out of the water when you went to reverse. So you had a boat that was like, like an ice skate on ice or a, a roller skate on ice that would go sideways that you couldn't stop. And so I learned, I learned a lot of good skills of, you know, like how to go slow, think, uh, be patient, think ahead, make all of my ship handling thoughts well ahead of coming to the dock. So like I got this great experience of all these different vessels and all these different docks and piers around Boston. I got a lot of customer service experience um, and that was fantastic, but it wasn't the best paying job. It was one of the funnest jobs I've ever had, you know, running passenger vessels and doing all these different things, booze cruises, entertainment cruises, harbor tours, whale watches um, and commuter runs because they did everything. Wow, yeah, that's that's quite the diverse uh, yeah, that, uh, repertoire that one there. Little, yeah, that one little company did like everything in the harbor. They were like, they did a little bit of everything. They had one boat that did commuter run, that also do whale watches. Another boat to do whale watches. They do harbor tours for lots of different uh, tour companies uh, that were pre-scheduled. They had this really cool thing called Boston by Sea that they bring reenactors and uh, this guy David Coffin. I'll never forget David Coffin. He's a a sea shanty guy with a, uh, a group called Ravel in Boston. And they'd come out and they did this history thing where they mm-hmm. talked about Boston history and they sang songs. And uh, he's still singing sea shanties as far as I know um, in Boston. And it's cool. And so like, it was really, really cool. They, do they throw tea in company. the water and then get the EPA to find them? Is that the, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't quite go that far, but we definitely talked about, you know, the Boston <laughs> party as we would leave the Harbor because it right Rose Wharf, right where we tied up was right next to, um, I think it's Griffin Wharf, which is where the tea party actually occurred. Okay. Um, of the four point channel, um, which is pretty cool. And then 
after working for Mass Bay Lines, I, I was like, I need to find something else. Uh, really and, quick, Carl. Uh, sorry, with Mass Bay Lines, um, was were would they was every captain expected to wear all those different hats and operate those different vessels, or was that something that you sought out? Um, it depended on the captain and their skill set and what they came to the company with. And so I came in with a pretty diverse background. And so um, even when off season, when we weren't sailing all of our boats, I was working there in the in the wintertime. So I would work on the maintenance crews maintaining mm-hmm. the vessels. So I had a much bigger, uh, like, you know, diverse background of what I could do. And I could work on pretty much all the boats that were there. There were other captains that would come in and they were like, this is their second job. They're teachers. And they'd only do like X, Y, and Z because it fit into their timing schedule. They could only work evenings. And I was like full time. So I could do any of that. Um, we had some captains that were specifically just doing computer runs or they were assigned to one vessel and they were in charge of not only their trips that they were assigned, but the vessel's overall maintenance. So they were like what we called charge captains and the charge captains would be in charge of that vessel, everything. They'd be there for the COIs. They'd be there for um, any time that it needed extra work. They'd show up. So it just depended on what your background was, how you got hired and what part of the company you fit into. And, and they were, you know, family owned company. They were very flexible in that. And I think that a lot of, a lot of us that worked for them kind of enjoyed that and took advantage of that, the ability to kind of flex and do what we needed to do. There's a lot of college students, grad students that were also coming in and taking a shift bartender. A lot of the bartenders (laughs) were in school. And so they were, you know, like taking a shift to do a bartending, um, and and then that's they all they only did those like night cruises where they the bar was open they make lots of money they weren't like concessionaires on the harbor tour all day okay ah fun all right so so after that I got a line on this on this gig down in Florida with this company Necton Dive Cruises from one of the other guys I was working with uh, and he was my roommate too and he said oh yeah I saw this job it's like I'm passing it on to you I'm not going to do it it's like oh cool and so. I looked into it. It's like, wow, diving. Cause I was a, a scuba diver, real passionate about the ocean. And this was captain of a small research ship that was doing dive itineraries for other ships. Um, and they wanted a, a, a first mate to come down and be on this research ship and, and scuba dive. And so it's like, well, I got a dive license. I got a mate. Or I got a captain's license. I can be a mate. And I went down to uh, Lauderdale, Florida, and I got an opportunity. Well, I met the, the boss. They hired me, and they flew. I flew down there, and it was it was really interesting. the The first day I got there, the boat that I was going to be on wasn't there. But the but John Dixon, the CEO of the company, wanted me to look into this idea that they had. They were they had on the back of their ships. They had these large you know box freezers open top, and you put stuff in for all the food for the passengers because their other two boats are passenger boats for liveaboard diving and they're swath boats with real stable platform. They, they advertise no seasickness and <laughs> they have a lot of guests. Right. And so they have these chest freezers that they want to put the food in, but they, you know, you stick something on the back of a boat in a saltwater environment when three months, the thing is done. It's yeah. rotted out, rusted, doesn't work. So they had this crazy idea. We get this guy that molded us, 
like you build a like you build a fiberglass boat they molded these 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 refrigerators or freezer boxes about the same size and they asked me it's like what do you know about refrigeration i'm like well you know this class i took in college (laughs) and so they're like come come take a look at this stuff and i was like okay and they had all the parts laid out and it's like yeah no you've got this part this part but you're missing all the connecting like tubes and plumbing and and it's like, oh, yeah, no, we're going to get all that. It's like, do you think you could build this? It's like, uh, I mean, I recognize all these parts. I probably could, but, you know, I'm not going to be able to guarantee that this is going to work. You really need to find, like, an HVAC guy that really can do this. It's like, I could probably repair a system that's broken, that's already built, but building it, it was, like, it was crazy. And, they, you know, they never actually got that thing to work. Oh, no, so um, all that I money wasted. <laughs> It's a classic. Yeah, I, I don't know. What is it? You save a dime to spend a dollar to save a dime. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So anyway, I was just kind of in a holding pattern looking at that before I met my my uh, my boat, which is the research vessel Catch a Lot, um, which is the scientific or name of a sperm whale Catch a Lot. Um, all their boats were named after whales: the Pilot, the Rorqual, and the Catch a Lot. And uh, as I was walking, literally, as I was walking to the boat, the captain was walking down the gangway with a suitcase, and he says, you the new mate? And I'm like, yes. He's like, congratulations, you're the new captain. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm the, what? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I've been captain of boats up in Boston, so, like, it's like I wasn't too terrified at that point. But, like, I was like, oh, man, well. I thought I was going to get, you know, some on-the-job training before I ever got asked to, you know, like be captain. And sure enough, they they uh, used my my license on board uh, with two other crew members for a while, and we did. We never actually got to do our actual mission, which was to go out find these dive sites and install these ecological moorings. We kind of half got a little bit of that done, um, but the hurricane season that year was really bad and it wiped out a lot of the dive sites in the Caribbean mm. and like infrastructure, uh, the Cayman islands were knocked flat. That was, uh, hurricane Ivan and Janine, that combination of those two just kind of like wiped out that whole area. And so the company started really struggling and we started, we got to the point where we couldn't get fuel anywhere because they didn't have money or they had too much money on account. They hadn't actually paid them in different locations. And so we kind of bounced around different parts of Florida trying to get um, fuel so we could go out and do the work. And we got, there was, we spent some time in a shipyard for a little while in Port St. Joe, Florida. And then I do remember very clearly, I spent a New Year's at anchor, not being able to leave the boat off of Key West, watching New Year's in Key West happen. I was like 23 or 24 at the time. Oh, brutal. Going, <laughs> oh my God, you know, like, I want to go play and have fun, um, but couldn't. Uh, and then we did hear this from the other boats and the other crew that they were talking about a pay cut because of the, the diving industry, the infrastructure in the Caribbean was like falling apart because of the hurricanes. And they didn't have enough money to pay us. And they're talking about like a 25% pay cut. I was like, oh man, I wasn't really making a lot as a captain right then anyway. And my crew were making a lot less. And, and so we wound up at Anchor in Key Biscayne, Florida. And I decided that things weren't going the right way there. And so I talked to the boss, put my two weeks notice and got, got out. Um, 
turns out that pay cut uh, wound up being a 50% pay cut. And uh, most of the ship crew left because they could make more money at Walmart. Yeah. Than they could on the boat. And it was just like, no, we, we all have credentials. We can, we got, we got much better options. Um, and that company is, uh, ultimately went bankrupt. It's kind of sad because they had a really good model for, for, uh, the, the swath cats and diving. It's a good platform for diving, but, uh, just it's business, right? Yeah. Companies sometimes fold and it sucks when you're the employee that has to then pivot and go find a new place to work. But I went back to Mass Bay Lines. And worked there for a little bit, but I was like, all right, I need something, I need something long-term, like career-wise, right? And I want to do something in the maritime industry and with science and, um, and like, uh, I was just happened to be, uh, hanging out with a friend of mine that was looking at the same thing. They're like, they need a, a career. And they're like, I want to go to an army recruiter. Maybe, maybe go talk to an army recruiter. I'm like, all right. He's like, will you come with me? He's like, all right. So she went into the army recruiter um, to talk to them. And so I talked, ended up talking to an army recruiter and I didn't think I qualified for the military. I didn't think I was going to make it in. I actually, when I was 12, I uh, had a surgery to remove part of one of my lungs. I was premature baby and it had fully developed and they didn't figure it out till I was about 12 and they did the surgery and took it out. And then I was just like, fine after that, was, like normal human being, everything was great. Um, much better off, uh, but it needed to get done. And so I thought like, well, you remove part of somebody's lung. You're, you're not going to make it in the military. Talking to the recruiter though, army recruiter, we went through, he had a book of all these things, medical things that can be wrong with. He's like, just, just part of one lung, not two. Right. He says, yeah, just one. He goes, Oh, you're good to go. I was like, really? And then, and I was like, huh. And it's like, and he was giving me the spiel. Like she come into the army we got all these small boats we can put you in these small boats and you'll have fun and <laughs> yeah. don't worry about me you don't want to be an officer you know like we'll give you a signing bonus you're listed and i got the spiel and i'm like yeah let me let me think on that well if i can get in the army there's this noah core thing and i knew about the noah core because they came and they recruited me in maritime academy but i never thought i could qualify until i talked to the army recruiter we looked up the regs and it's like well the regular army will take me then maybe I have a shot no of course so I applied and it, it's a kind of a lengthy process it took me about a year and a half to get in from application to, to commission so, so you were you were not in the army at that point in time for that year and a half no 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 no. oh wow okay no I, I never joined the army I, I went I was working for mass bay lines and doing gig work and yeah and other stuff in between um and so I I was able to then put the application in. I got that um, accepted, got in, and was able to go to the training class. Although it was a weird deal. Like, uh, they lost pure government uh, issues, bureaucratic issues. They lost my commission. So the rest of my class <laughs> went to the training. Oh. And then I got stuck in this, like, weird limbo zone for, like, a couple weeks where they couldn't find my documents. They're like, well, we know you got in, but you can't find your paperwork. I'm like, what? <laughs> and, and so they, they figured that out. Um, and I was able to go, but they had already started training, but luckily it was all basic safety training, mm. which is all the stuff that I had coast guard, basic safety training, you know, lifeboat men, yeah. ocean survival, uh, fire. Well, I think they did basic firefighting, but anyway, I was able to walk in 
from my previous experience at Maine Maritime and just go. And it was kind of cool because our training was at Kings Point Merchant Marine Academy. And one of the professors there was like, what? Walk in the middle of radar class. You'll never be able to pass. This is like, and I held up my SCCW search like, I don't technically have to pass. I'm qualified, <laughs> but I want to, and I'm going to try my best. And they're like, all right. And I did. I, I passed halfway through their class. I, I remembered enough of my radar, so I, I passed. But then I went through basic training, graduated, and was assigned a ship. And we all get assigned a ship. We have a big bill at night where they, they kind of like do some kind of presentation at the time. And they, they like show a ship and then they reveal the name of the person going there. And we all get excited. Or if it wasn't the assignment you wanted, you're like, no, but um, we all got to, to, to like get a ship. So we were at least, you know, like being assigned a vessel and going to sea, all excited, um, newly commissioned ensigns. And so I started my career with NOAA after that training class on the NOAA ship Oscar Dyson, which was a brand new vessel that was working in Alaska. And I was super excited. I flew into Portland, Maine on a very rainy night, or uh, Portland, Oregon, excuse me, mm -hmm. on a very rainy night. Un unheard of. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> met, my, met my ship at Swan Island Shipyard which I think is, uh, might be bigger now. Um, those things change hands uh, pretty quick. And I was blown away, you know, like I was working on prior to NOAA, I was working on, um, you know, like anything from a uh, 60 to 110 foot passenger vessel or, you know, I like at Maine Maritime, we had the state of Maine, the big 500 foot, close to 500, no, 510 foot, training ship like so i've been on ships like i've seen them but i hadn't been on a noah ship before and this is a brand new noah ship and you know like i, I sailed on a schooner Bowden quite a bit and you know you get a bunk yeah you know like that's your bunk that's all the space you get right coffin size bunk that's where you can store all your stuff next thing you know i'm on this noah ship and i have like this i share a stateroom but it's oh, wow. pretty big you know like like not quite a hotel room size it's big still bunk beds but i get a locker and storage <laughs> a bathroom and i'm like wow this is this is really nice and then the bridge on the the uh the dyson class vessels because dyson's the first of that class the fsvs well, FSVs, fisheries survey vessels the bridge is a 360 degree kind of walk around bridge it's massive it's the biggest bridge of a of a 200 it's a 223, um, uh, no, wait, excuse me. Why can't I think of it now? It's a 200 foot ship. Um, and it's massive, right? This bridge is massive. And, and I get to now work on this thing. It was pretty eye opening and really awesome. And I had a great tour on that. But we, we uh, the primary missions of it was to do fisheries research up in the Bering Sea, mostly Pollock surveys. Because the Pollock industry is one of the largest fisheries in the world. It's about, I think, $2 billion worth of uh, fish a year to come out of there. Uh, all the processed fish in America is from Alaska and it's Pollock. And all oh, wow. the surimi or processed fish, too, is uh, caught up there. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're supporting that industry by, by basically going out and counting fish, which is funny because at Maine Maritime Academy, they um, they – labeled each of the the uh the majors with a nickname you know like you had your deckies you had your engineers um 
then you had, you know, like the power engineering guys, but they, they liked calling the science guys fish counters. <laughs> and then here I am on a, on a ship, right. As, as actually like kind of like a, a entry level trainee third mate uh-huh. commissioned officer, but we're counting fish. <laughs> so we're, so it's really funny. <laughs> Well, I remember that because I never considered the science vessels until I met this um, this lady on uh, coming on a tour, I think, on, on my tall ship. And uh, she was she was like a 50 something year old. Like you could tell she was a knockout, you know, back in the day kind of thing and still looked very athletic, very healthy. And I started, you know, just, we were chatting. She's asking about the boat and stuff. And I said, oh, what do you do? And she's like, oh, I work on, you know, research vessels. Or, or I, th- I think it was one of the icebreakers that, that is no longer in commission. And we started chatting about it. And I said, you know, yeah, I had considered, sign, you know, signing on for one of those maybe. But I was like, yeah, but I was, I didn't want to, I was like, I'd want to actually help a little bit with the science and stuff. And she, she basically said, oh, we do, like, we do the science. Like, like those scientists will kill themselves so quickly, you know, if they were operating the heavy machinery. Like, no, no, they, we don't trust them with anything. And it was, it was kind of, I mean, I, I, obviously that's probably exaggerated, but, but it, I was kind of like, oh, you know what, I'm going to try to apply. And I actually did get to the last level of, of application and then, and then they didn't accept me for the final job. But, but uh, that's what kind of got me into it. it was like, oh, you can actually be a sailor on board. And you're doing some of the science and working with the equipment and, you know, participating, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons they require all the NOAA officers have a science background and then they make them into a, a sailor. Right. So they, they mm. take a, a, a site, basically it's any science or STEM background, mostly STEM. And they take those people and they put them basically into the role of now being the mates on board and then the master and captain and the commissioned officers. And so that we have a congruity with the scientists, like we know what they're trying to accomplish, but we also know the safety of the vessel and how the equipment works and the operational limits of the vessel. So we're like making sure that we, we support their science, but we also keep them safe and bring them home. Yeah, um, and that, no. that that's so vital because like so often, you know, even even on the tall ships, like if you get too caught up in the program and like, oh, well, I want to show these passengers a really cool thing or, you know, oh, for the ed program, we need to be in a, in, you know, this yep. environment. But then as captain, you have to sit back and like, well, actually, that that's not going to be safe in 20 minutes because of the tide or, or you know, you, you know what I mean? Like, so you really need at least one or two people that can sit back and see that bigger picture yeah. and not get caught up in the science. Cause yeah. But then again, it's also important to have people that are super focused on that. So I get it. Yeah. That's, that's really smart. Yeah, no. And I, I can only imagine what it's like, you know, like over at SEA, the Sea uh, education association at Wits Hole, mm-hmm. cause they're, they're doing a lot of like educational, like semester coursework for the students or college students on a tall ship collecting science and then sailing and like you got to balance the safety and the science together. And so we do that too with, with uh, our ships. Um, and it, and it should, it's probably a good time to point out that like I talked about me being commissioned officer on board and our, our leadership on the ships, the commissioned officers are made up of NOAA commissioned officers. There's 321 of us. We're a U.S. uniformed service. We trace our, our, our origins back to, uh, 1807 with the survey of the coasts, and then more specifically to 1917 when the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey became a commissioned 
and enlisted basically in military service uh, when World War, right on the precipice of World War One, us entering World War One, to make sure that our people in these different roles that were mapping and charting and doing stuff behind enemy lines, if they were captured, they'd be POWs versus uh, like espionage and spies and you know, inch. Yes, so, that makes wow. Okay, I've never thought of that before. Yeah, that yeah, is fascinating. During the Civil War, um, the Coast Survey people were just, they were just out mapping because they were told by the government go out and map these areas of land. We need better maps, you know. And they were getting caught by either the North or the South, and they're like, "Well, we don't know what to do with you." And you're obviously mapping, and mapping is what the enemy does to get intel, and your spies look at. You know, oh, like, no. so yeah. it was, and it was yeah. same thing was happening with the um, with doctors too. It's one of the reasons the public health service exists is like as a commissioned service is like these people were trying to help people and getting in trouble, and so like we we became a commissioned service because of that aspect. Plus, it gives us flexibility. You know, the military can deploy at minutes' notice. They're they're always prepared for stuff, so we had that flexibility, and so that's where the NOAA Corps came from. And from uh, a guy named Lester Jones, he also started the uh, was one of the founding members of the American Legion. Um, but he he kind of like envisioned this, and he worked with Congress, and he he made us exist. We're now the NOAA commissioned well at the time U.S. Coast Geodetic Survey, um, and we had commissioned officers and enlisted, and we were like that up until the '60s, and then for some reason that I still don't fully understand, the enlisted component disappeared. Mm. and was uh, replaced with professional mariners. And then in the 1970s, the Nixon administration combined a lot of scientific agencies under a couple of just houses. Like uh, a lot of people went to either Department of Interior or all the oceans and atmosphere. So that's NOAA, National Oceans and Atmospheric Administration, was combined into one agency under Department of Commerce because weather and charting and fisheries and uh, patent office uh, and the census and a few other things that we do in, in NOAA and, and the Department of Commerce are very commerce related. So it okay. makes sense to have it all there. Um, Interesting. And so that's where the NOAA Commissioned Officer Corps came in was like in the 70s. But now on our ships, we still don't have any of those enlisted personnel. So all commissioned officers are 321 of us. We have 16 ships and we serve as the, in the command roles on board. So the master and mates, and then the rest of the, the ships complement are civilian professional mariners, uh, or, um, uh, they're government employee professional mariners. And, it, it, it's it's a different dynamic. So when I talk to officers who are in the Coast Guard or the Navy, and yeah, they're mariners, but they work on ships with the enlisted, who are also mariners. But we have the enlist or the civilians instead of enlisted, and it's a different dynamic. And you have to you have to approach it in a very different way. Much more, you have to be much more charismatic. Much more, uh, uh, you can't just bark orders to these guys. They're uh, particularly, the, the, you know, he got a junior ensign that came in and just went through college, went through our training program, or now OCS at the Coast Guard Academy, slap them onto a ship, and they might be in charge of a 30-year veteran sailor civilian, yeah, technically, but that guy's got all the experience, and so you like you have to learn pretty quickly, like 
how to interact and like how to how to manage these things. But then when you're on the bridge and you're qualified as an officer of the deck, once you go through enough training to like actually stand your own watches on the bridge, you are the the representative of the captain on the bridge. Mm-hmm. So then you go back into that that author- authoritative leadership role. And so you got to blend those two together. It's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And it's, um, I, I found it really actually in, in my time, like I've, I've really enjoyed everybody I've sailed with. So like, it's, it's good. I like it. It's, I like that we have the experience and the, the, you know, the skills and leadership from the NOAA Corps, but the experience that we get from professional mariners been kicking around a long time. And some of them are vets and worked like, in the, in the research industry or fishing industry or other industries for many, many years. Um, some of them are brand new. We get, we'll, we'll get brand new people straight out of uh, like Seattle Maritime is we get a lot of crew from Seattle Maritime, a lot of brand new ABs and cooks and uh, you know, like uh, wipers and junior engineers. Yeah. And it's great. I love working with everybody. Um, and so we have like this fleet of 16 ships. We've got commissioned officers. We've got, uh, civilian mariners and all the different departments. We're always hiring, always looking for new people. It's a great place for people to work. Um, one thing that should be mentioned too is we don't have a traditional rotation, and this is this is not for everybody. So some some professional mariners are okay with it, others are not. We don't have that traditional like fifty on, fifty percent off, or like thirty days on, thirty days off rotation. Um, we're working towards and you're talking cover- uh, sorry and you're talking about rotation not onboard the vessel but as in onboard vessel versus onboard uh, on land right like, um, like so watch on, watch on, rotations are still four on four off I'm guessing right or some yeah, yeah yeah so yeah. yeah so rotation on and off the vessel like working or non-working yeah okay. on board so yeah um, our, our shipboard rotations for watches are fairly normal we've we've embraced a, a new system that the Coast Guard actually is, is starting to uh, endorse more than the, the four on eight off schedule. Mm-hmm. There, we've come up with a system where you're you work for four hours on the bridge, you're off for four hours, still working, but working on your collateral duties or whatever stuff you're working on. Then you're back on the bridge for four hours, so you have a twelve hour day, and then you have twelve hours off. Interesting. And anybody I know gets much prefers that to four hours on. Eight hours off, four hours on. You get an eight-hour day that way because you still have to do your collateral duties, so you're never getting really, truly more than eight hours sleep on any of the off periods. Right. It's just it's really hard to do that. Now, well, I've often wondered, honestly, um, I, I, I do often wonder if the, if the old four on and four off because you end up getting about three hours of sleep at a time usually. But you know how they say, like, scientifically, the REM period is around yep. that period? I almost wonder if, like, they they didn't figure out, like, hey, this is, like, the minimal, you know, amount of sleep people need, and, and, it, and it works, and you can do that indefinitely. Um, so part of me is, like, I wonder if the science actually backs up with historically and, you know, you know what the boats used to do. But that's, yeah, it's... But, but for the modern ones, for, for what you're describing there with 12 on, 12 off, so how does that work? Obviously, in the Arctic or Antarctic, like... I mean, I'm assuming sometimes you'll just have pure daylight 24/7, so that doesn't matter, right? But like, would you have what? What is the hour breakdown? Is it like, oh, one group just get used, like they just get nighttime most of the time, or is it divided up, yeah. or how so, does that work? So in Alaska, it almost doesn't matter because, like you said, like in the summertime, you're gonna, it's going to be like really 
sunlight the whole time and, and closer to the, the, you know, the winter and, uh, uh, you're going to get the darkness. Right. So it, yeah. it, it, we try to rotate. So like you'll be on one watch schedule for a leg or a couple legs, and then we'll try to mix it up so that you don't get on the same one again. So you're not like, say spending your whole summer in daylight at midnight, you know, like you're going to, you're going to get moved around and, and it, and that schedule because of that REM sleep, you get to the, you know, like right around seven to eight hours, you're starting to get the REM sleep in. Mm-hmm. And so if you have 12 hours off, you can actually like sleep through some of the REM sleep and really get that deep recovery. Mm-hmm. The eight hour one, if you go to bed immediately leaving your watch, you might get it before you're awake for your next watch. Right. Yeah. And there's like, you gotta get food in between and maybe get some, talk to some people and you never quite fully get it. And so the Coast Guard did a study recently. I can't remember. It, it's definitely Googleable, but they, they've recommended going away from that to get the more, the longer period of time to sleep if people want it. Um, and so we've kind of embraced that and we've, we've done really, I think we've done really well with that. And uh, at least for our, our watch officers, the, the civilian uh, mariners, they tend to do, different schedules depending on operations and how they do it. Like on the fish boats, uh, there'll be a, you know, there, there'll be like a, a noon to midnight and a midnight to noon section. Mm-hmm. And those guys will do a 12 hour period where they're, they're up to do the trawling and then they're down cleaning or painting or maintenance and then trawling during a 12 hour period. And then the next shift does the next 12 hour period, same thing. Um, uh, and so there, there, it just depends on the ship, depends on the operations. But for the most part, I've seen the four hours on the bridge, four hours off the bridge, still working, doing collateral duties, four hours back on the bridge, 12 hour total day, and then a 12 hour time period off as being kind of the optimal. We definitely like that one. Um, as far as the rotation on and off the ship for working. So because government employees, there's really isn't. Uh, an employment model that works really good. We're actually figuring out better ways to do this too within the fleet. But for the most part, everybody works uh, within the constraints of federal employment. So they have so many days off, they earn shore leave and annual leave and sick leave and comp time and all these different employment statuses while they're working. And if you, and if you plan it right, you can build up your leave so that you can take like, well, I'm going to sail, you know, this, the beginning of the season and I'll take this one leg off and then I'll sail the rest of the season. And then I might take off the winter time when we're in dry dock or shipyard. And, and so like you're employed that whole time, which is a benefit to some people because you get the stability of employment, but like a lot of sailors really like that, that 30 day on 30 day off rotation mm-hmm. or, you know, um, although in the tall ship world, I don't see that rotation happen as much, but like commercial world tugboats and container ships and freighters and, tankers you see that rotation being much more uh utilized so we have we have employees well i think for tall ships too like like most of the programs i've been on you're not out i mean if you're if you were out sailing for months that would make a lot of sense but uh because you're not you know yeah it's it's uh and some of them are pretty fluid yeah some are seasonal some are just like hey we need help (laughs) yeah exactly it's a little bit more like gig work so like some of our employees really like that. Other employees would much rather have the uh, rotation. We've actually created a rotation for our licensed engineers. That is a it's a two month on, one month off, 
kind of system, and it, it works within the bounds of how the government employment system works. And we we manage that, and that works pretty good. They're working on trying to expand that to everybody else. Uh, but we still have tons of employees that work with us. A lot of them love the stability. They love the benefits. They love the the steady pay. They like they like that nice solid paycheck coming in. You know, like I've got a lot of friends that moved from tall ships or tugboats um, to us, and like uh, uh, one of the engineers that went to Maine Maritime, but it was sailing with me on the uh, Fairweather. Super into the fact that we do neat and unusual things like you can work on a tanker and you can work on that tanker or car carrier going from tokyo to la you know and that's yeah. his, that's his route yeah and he sees the same thing every time or he can work on the fair weather and go make maps and charts in prince william sound like we did uh this summer and you know you get to see cool things you know you walk out of the engine room and you look outside and there's a beautiful mountain there you know or like being in cool places. Research boats go to strange and unusual places, do strange and unusual things for scientists or for science. And so there's that, that interest. That there's, there's a reason to be places and do things. And it's, it's, it's really fun. And it's, it's definitely something that I'm passionate about. I love that aspect. I love the fact that I'm just not hauling cargo from point A to point B. I'm, I'm definitely going out and I'm exploring and I'm you know, a little bit more like the Starship Enterprise, you know, going out someplace <laughs> it's never been before. We're making charts uh, on the fair weather. We're collecting data in places that if you look at the chart, there's no soundings. Wow. I mean, think about that. There's no soundings. We're literally, somebody might have been there before, but they didn't record anything. Yeah. We're going and charting in places that nobody's ever seen, which is well, well, wild. And weren't you saying, you know, we were talking last night, uh, you were saying as the glaciers are receding in the north, that, I mean, you're, you are literally going places where no, no human has ever seen, and, and certainly under the water, things that have never been seen. I mean, that, yeah, that, that, so, that's incredible. Because you have to keep going back to the same bay, right, as it opens up further yeah. and further? Yeah, so uh, we have three types of ships in the NOAA fleet. We have uh, hydrographic vessels, fisheries vessels, and general oceanographic vessels. So I was last on a hydrographic vessel. Hydrographic vessels make nautical charts. And... Um, we were tasked with going up to Glacier Bay and Prince William Sound, both two places where there's a lot of tourism with glaciers. And as the uh, glaciers have receded due to uh, global climate change, you know, there's been areas where there's underwater topography that's never been charted, you know, because there was a glacier there. Nobody ever thought about charting it. But the cruise ships want to get closer and closer and closer to the glacier face so their passengers can see the beauty of glaciers. And so we have to go up there and we have to chart in these areas. And so you're you're getting close to not only a glacier uh, face, so you got to stay far enough away that's safe, but there's other hazards in the area, underwater hazards. There's, there could be rock piles left behind by the glacier in the moraine um, or glacial erratics, these large boulders that the glacier will just drop off. And so we have to go up there and chart it all, and it's and it's it's a pretty tricky. We have to be very careful. Plus, uh, we were up there in early season, so we were there when that when there's a lot of ice still in the water. There was sea ice and and glacier ice, and so you have to navigate in and around the ice to to then make all these charts. And it's 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 a it's a it's a high priority for us to get that done so that the cruise ships don't have problems, right? So going back to commerce, Department of Commerce is uh, we're trying to keep the tourism commerce going and making it safe. Okay. We also make charts in other areas to make sure that like if 
there's a new route where tugboats are hauling cargo in Alaska, for example, we'll, we'll make sure that any areas of concern are charted um, because Alaska had a major earthquake in 1964 and the bottom topography in a lot of areas changed. Oh, wow. Well, those charts that were originally up there were from, you know, way back when the, even the Russians were charting the area before uh, we bought Alaska from Russia. And so a lot of the data is pretty dated. Even, even our old data from Alaska was totally invalidated after the 1964 earthquake. Uh So we had to go up there and start redoing stuff. So we're trying to keep the waterways safe and open, you know, like, cause, and, and we're not just commerce, but also the environment. NOAA has a very much, we're all stewards of the environment, NOAA employees. So if, if a, tanker goes aground spills oil like that's on LDs you know on an uncharted rock that's that's an environmental problem so we want to make sure the environment's safe make sure commerce is open and everything is going good and so the hydrographic side is all about that and then like I said earlier I worked on a fisheries boat the Oscar Dyson and that was the same purpose we're doing fisheries research we do fisheries research in Alaska the coast of uh, California and Oregon uh, really big in New England uh, and down in, in the Florida Keys and Caribbean and Gulf of Mexico. So there's a lot of this research that we do, and we're, we're trying to keep the fishing stocks sustainable. NOAA wants to make sure that all the fishermen are able to fish and their descendants and their generations beyond them are able to fish and that we're able to provide that food for the people of America. That's the commerce part of it. It's like yeah. That's what NOAA's trying to do. And we also try to do research on things like global climate change, ocean acidification, coral bleaching. So we do a lot of that research too. Um, we also study and catch a lot of the smaller, you know, krill and eufalcid shrimp, the the food sources for, you know, the building blocks of everything in the ocean. So mm-hmm. we're constantly studying the habitat, the food sources, and then the fish on the fishery side. The third type of vessel that the NOAA fleet has are these oceanographic research vessels that spend much more time further out at sea and they they work on um uh for example the ron brown is our largest it's uh the same class as the roger Ravel or the tommy thompson uh, that scripps and university of washington operate uh they go out and they do really oh it's actually the the ship that went to the titanic the second time around the second titanic uh expedition and took Alvin out to the Titanic. Okay. Uh, the Atlantis was the same class too out of Woods Hole. Um, so there's four of them. Uh, and they can go out much further and they go out into the, the deeper ocean. They do stuff like plankton trawls and aerosol research where the air is super clean and they can uh, do a lot of the weather and atmospheric research. They'll also, they're the ones that uh, deploy and work on the tower ray, which is this, this array around the, kind of like equatorial ring of the United or the whole world where they do different data um, that comes from these buoys that they put in or the early tsunami warning system. That's something they put out a lot okay. of buoy work. There's all these, and you'll see them on, on charts, the yellow, big, bright yellow buoys that yeah. say like ODAS or uh, different scientific moorings. So they'll go out and they'll work on those vessels or, or those moorings and recover them, replace them maintain them um and then there's a lot of like like the okeanos explorer did the world's large the longest plankton trawl 
So they did one for like 1,500 miles. It was like a plankton trawl. Oh, wow. And, and when they came into Rhode Island, I remember they were getting like accolades for it. But stuff like that, going out and working on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and more deep sea, big ocean stuff. Right, so obviously, so this, this kind of oceanographic work, a lot of it is in international waters, obviously. Yep. Um, these are buoys. They're... They're, the buoys are expensive. They have to be maintained. You guys going out there, you all have salaries. You've got these vessels that are very expensive, fuel, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's all the U.S. government that does this? Like, is there an international commission that pays the U.S. government to kind of do this? Is like, like what? So, how does that work? Are we that altruistic, or is there something I'm missing here? Um, so it's actually a lot of it's NOAA, but also National Science Foundation. Um, the National Weather Service, there's like, which is part of NOAA, but there's all these different groups that get money to work on those things. There's um, international um, university agencies. There's the our own university agency, like UNOLS, that is like putting money into it. it come, the funding comes from a lot of different sources. Uh-huh. And the time on the vessel is then allocated in a fleet allocation process that uh, where they get all the funding and then they say, all right, so this vessel is going to go out and it's going to do this thing at this time. And the funding's coming from here or from here, here and here. And then the UNOLS boats like the Tommy Thompson, the Roger Ravel and the Atlantis and uh, many others that are in the university system and, and oceanographic institute system like Scripps and Woods Hole, they're also getting funding either from the federal government or from other agencies or universities or through like a scientist wants to go do a project. He'll get grant money for that project and then he can use part of that money to pay for the ship time to go out and do it. So like for a lot of that stuff, it's just dependent on which project they're on and what the interests are. I mean, NASA and the Air Force sometimes and EPA, they put money into these pods. BOEM, which is, uh, look up the, uh, I can't remember the uh, exact um, acronym that BOEM is. Um, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management yeah. is, a, is a big agency now, a government agency, and they do a lot of research in the in the up to the continental shelf of the United States. Yeah. Carl, you know what? Say that again with confidence and then we could just edit it in or, or I'll <laughs> right. totally so, screw with you and just keep this totally unedited. Either way, it'll be great. <laughs> right. So, so the Bureau of Ocean Energy and Management are foam. Right? Oh, wow. Do tell me more. You sound really sharp. <laughs> yeah. They're basically like, if you ever worked with the Bureau of Land Management in like the terrestrial part of the United yeah. States, uh, yeah. they're the ones that manage government land. Well, since most of the ocean is really like the, the government kind of claims yeah. you know, up to our territorial limit and our, our exclusive economic zone, the government claims that area is part of its management area, right? Okay. And so BOEM is the, is the agency that's working to allocate like wind farms go here, fishing is going to be here, and you know, like we might do oil exploration or natural gas exploration offshore over there. So they're doing the kind of the same thing as like what the Bureau of Land Management does, yeah. but offshore. Yeah. yeah, my only experience with the Bureau of Land Management was playing a paintball game on some of their property, some of their land. It was pretty great. But yeah. uh, I guess I guess you wouldn't do that out at sea. So, I don't know. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, well, I mean, 
But I get and it. Tall yeah. ships what? tend to play around with their cannons a little bit, so it's kind of like the Oh, same we thing. do. Yeah, we, we've done uh, launching. Uh, oh, God. Well, I was at uh, one battle sail. It was with six different tall ships off of Dana Point, and they had at least two vessels, I think. And there was a Coast Guard vessel there, too. So it was like we had to be legit. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't be damaging the yeah. environment or whatever. But they had, like, some sort of proper biodegradable um, – uh, water balloons canister it, it was oh. like water balloons and and it was but it's something that like it would just dissolve you know and and uh and i don't don't ask me i wasn't the one firing them i wasn't it wasn't on our vessel but uh but i remember seeing that like ah, that's that's pretty funny <laughs> so they come in close right. and launch them but uh yeah. yeah it's it's wild yeah having all those vessels uh yeah you, you realize very quickly the rules of the road the quote-unquote rules of the road are they just avoid the other vessel, avoid the other vessel at all costs at that point. You know, it's, you, you don't, you don't want to hit anybody in a six, six boat plus the, the other um, little yacht boats and stuff that are watching. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not, it's not the rules go out of the road. It's just the the one rule is don't hit anyone else. Don't hit anyone. Yeah. Yeah, And, And if you do hit anybody, everybody's at fault, right? Rule number two. Well, that's that's probably one of the beauty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's one of the beautiful things, I guess, about what you do is not only are you in these pristine environments and you're seeing things that most people never see in their lifetime, uh, but boy, the traffic has to be low. <laughs> I mean, so, right? So it depends. It depends. Cause, okay. Uh, um, so we went up and worked in Prince William Sound, and I think that's kind of a fun example of like where where you're in the most pristine place in the United States, absolutely gorgeous. But there's a VTS system there, and so you're checking in with traffic, <laughs> and because and it's it's a it's a byproduct of the Exxon Valdez uh, strike, right? Okay. And, and disaster. So one of the corrective actions from that was they have to have a VTS system. And while we were up there working, and I didn't know this, is that there's pre-positioned spill uh, barges with all the spill equipment on it uh-huh. and a tugboat. And these tugboats go up and they pick up a barge with their spill equipment and they go over to a cove and they relieve a tug and barge that's there. And then those guys go back up to Valdez for some time off and then they get on position and they're they're in place um, to then uh, be ready in case there's an accident. And so we have to comply with the you know, the traffic separation scheme and checking in and tell them what we're doing. We're going over here to go do this research and collect, you know, like data for charts. And then we have to interact with the tugboats. But recently, a Valdez, the contract for that was uh, picked up by Edison Swest, which is a company from the Gulf. And so you're, you're up in, in Alaska hearing Southern accents on the radio going, wait a minute. What's going on? But it's the guys that got the contract. Interesting. And there was a lot of traffic. But you're in, like, the most remote part of the country, and there's still traffic and a separation scheme. But then I've also been out in the Bering Sea where there's nothing. And you may not see a boat for days. And then we'd be doing these big, long, 200-mile fisheries uh, survey transects, just going north and south, Mm -hmm. 200 miles, collecting acoustic data to look at fish biomass. And we'll go up one, you know, go north on one, then take a left and go you know, 20 miles and then go down 200 miles. And on that next leg, we would run into a fishing fleet. And <laughs> so we'd go from having no ships around to us to have like 15 right there. Wow. And they're all fishing in all different directions. And so, yeah, you can be in remote areas, but still hit some traffic. Um, okay. 
when I got an opportunity to go on the Polar Star down to Antarctica and be part of Deep, Operation Deep Freeze in 2016. And like I was saying, like being, being sure. out in the middle of nowhere and being the only ship out there. But then you get down to Antarctica and we'd be out there breaking the ice and doing stuff. And the next thing you know, this, this British research vessel goes by. We're like, oh my God, there's a ship there. And then we had to meet up with the, the ships that we were breaking the ice for, the, the cargo ships that were bringing, bringing in the supplies to McMurdo Station. That's why we were there. We were cracking open the ice, yeah. making an area, an avenue for them to come in and a turning basin and approaches up to the, the frozen, they have a, the pier there is a frozen pier made up of freshwater ice that they float. Like it's, a, it's an ice cube pier. They literally take, <laughs> they take rebar and then they, they, then ice, they make ice. First they make ice because it freezes, right? They yeah. Fresh water out and it freezes and then they put rebar on it and then they add water to that freezes and it gets heavier and they build a rebar and frozen freshwater like pier. Because the freshwater floats better, obviously. It floats on the salt water, right? Yeah. And and so and it's denser, it's harder. Uh, Saltwater ice, uh, it's softer, it's smushier. Oh, interesting! I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, sea ice, uh, sea ice, because it it takes more or lower temperatures to freeze it, right? So it's softer. But like glacier ice is super compact, freshwater, and it's super dense. Wow. But they they build this they build this ice pier, which is really cool, and then. We broke open the ice so that these container ships and, and fuel ships could come into McMurdo. And it was really fascinating being part of that. I, I got the opportunity to go down because I was working in Alaska doing um, ice seals research was, was one of the projects that was coming up for me. And I, they, they wanted to give me some time doing ice navigation, ice breaking techniques and learning about the, the polar environment. And so I was able to go down there. I also supported a, a, a UAS system, a drone system that that they're gonna that NOAA is gonna operate in really cold environments and see how it operated so that we could use it in other places. And so I supported that team while I was down there and got to sail on the Polar Star and see how the Coast Guard does stuff. It was it was a very educational opportunity for me. I learned a ton about it um, from it. And, uh, and then I went back up and took that those skills with me back to the Arctic when I was doing the the was program where we were taking the Oscar Dyson in around the sea ice flows. So pack ice, where yeah. the, the ice seals are on. Yeah. I was going to say, you, you'd mentioned that, that you, you've also sailed in the Arctic. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah. So uh, funny story. Uh, so uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but sailors collect crossings, um, <laughs> like crossing the equator or crossing, you know, like going through the Panama canal um, and so, uh, I've personally done in, in the same year I did the Arctic and Antarctic circles, which I've been to the Arctic before. So I was a blue nose already, but in one year I, I, I did both, which was pretty cool. Uh, right. Arctic and Antarctic. So, so you so, got any of the, you got any of the sailor tattoos then? Um, actually I do have, uh, I, I had, so. Cause you'd be covered head to toe in tattoos. I would imagine with, with all these no, crossings so and I've all never, these things. I've never crossed the equator. So I don't oh, have a, okay. shell, a proper shell back. Yeah. Yet. I'm working on it. I got it. I got to get on a boat that does that, but I have done Antarctic circle, Arctic circle and the international dateline. Okay. Which is the golden dragon. So I have a tattoo that's incorporated those, those three. <laughs> and instead of getting a golden dragon tattoo, I got a golden seahorse. 
sea dragon. <laughs> it's very dragonic looking uh, seahorse. Mm-hmm. And he's um, got a blue nose. It's kind of out, outlined with a little purple. He's red and blue for the Arctic and Antarctic and, and the golden dragon. Um, but I'm, I'm going to collect more as, as I can. It's just, I've been very, a very nor very, very high latitude sailor. I haven't really gotten into the equator yet, but I want to at some point. Yeah. So, um, so while we were down there in Antarctica, there was a lot of traffic and I was kind of surprised by that. And, and like you said, it's like, it depends on where you are, but if you look at, if you go to ship tracker or maritime traffic and you look at the world right now with all the AIS signals, it blows me away. Every time I do that, there is boat traffic everywhere. Yeah. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. And folks, folks can do that at home. It's, it's easy. They're free. Those apps are totally free. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. The wind app. Yeah, and it's, I mean, There's so many cool apps out there nowadays. My goodness. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. But you get this, you get the sense of like, wow, you can actually see the trade routes. Yeah. Cargo ships are going. And, and there's just so many vessels out there. The maritime industry is that huge. So yeah, we saw traffic all over the place. Um, and we even saw, you know, like in the Bering Sea, which is one of the areas that I think could be more remote. Like I, I was always blown away by like, oh, wow. Okay. There's a fishing vessel. That, that's not uncommon. But we ran into a woman who was single-handedly sailing, trying to sail to the, um, the up to as far north as she could. She was trying to get to the Northwest Passage in Alaska. Oh wow! And so we ran into this this thirty-foot sailboat, and she called us on our MFHF, and they, she thought we were an ocean-going tug from a distance. The, the profile of the Oscar Dyson is kind of tuggish. It's very short, but you know, like it looks like. Tug- she called us, and and we ended up. Uh, talking to her and um i know the ron brown actually wound up in a, interacting with a guy in a in a barrel this, <laughs> like this i'd, I'd like to interview like a, that guy <laughs> yeah it was like That'd a, be interesting caps. i don't know they ran into this guy in a very non-traditional vessel that mm-hmm. he's trying to cross one of the oceans in and they ended up giving him fresh food and supplies and got to talk, you know, like you get sea for months and months and you get to talk to somebody. It's pretty well, <laughs> but you know, like we get to do some weird stuff in weird places. And so it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I, I love that about it. Like, like the ice seals thing. Um, you and I talked about that the other night. It was, it was one of my favorite projects I ever worked on. We were tasked with going up into the Bering sea to the ice edge of the sea ice pack and work around the ice edge and then up into what are called polinias whenever you get a, an area where the, the water opens up and, and there's ice free. That's a polynia. And we go up into these polynias and we'd look for with the scientists on board. We'd look for areas where there was all these seals that, that haul out on the ice, ice seals, spotted seals, ring seals, uh, in the more, more so in the Atlantic side, harp seals, uh, gray seals. There was like all these seals that live up on the ice up there. The ribbon seals are amazing. Um, if you've ever, if you've never, heard of a ribbon seal before i highly recommend you google it they look right. like skunks what? it's a really they're black and white they have these beautiful white stripes on them and you've a lot of people don't even know they exist but they're all up in the ice and so we were studying those um taking the scientists out and the scientists would deploy like three or four zodiacs into the water once we get close to where the seals are because you can't like go get the seal from the ship the ship's too big the ship's really the platform that brings the scientists up there. And then they, they, they launch these small boats 
And they would meet scientists. And then the first year I did it, there was a bunch of Alaska natives who were actually experienced in hunting seals. So the techniques to capture a seal, to study it, very similar to what you do to hunt a seal. And so they were teaching the scientists how to do this. And what they do is like they see an ice or a seal on a, a flow of ice and they approach it from three different directions of the zodiacs. They drive the zodiacs right up to the ice. And then one of the scientists would leap out of the zodiac with a net and run up to the seal and then put the net on the seal and just stop it from moving. Um, but by coming from three different directions, the, the seal didn't know which way to go, which way to run to get off the ice. Mm -hmm. And so they would have this moment of hesitation allows us to catch them. We can't like shoot them with a tranquilizer diet because it takes a while for the tranquilizer uh, to, to work on, on an animal like that. They're pretty big. They're, they're large. They're much larger than your, you know, your house, you know, like dog that you'd have like a domesticated dog. They're pretty big animals and several hundred pounds. And so it would take a while for that dart to work. So you don't want them to then get off into the water and they're tranquilized because then they might drown because we, we're, we're trying to study them but not hurt them. And so we catch them and then take blood samples, DNA samples, weigh them, measure them, um, get their uh, all their particular information and then attach a tracker to them and then let them go. And the tracker was really cool. It would it would tell us how often they're to surface, how long they're, oh, they'd haul out, haul out for, how deep they would dive. And it was um, it was really interesting. They epoxied it through their fur, but this is a pre-molt animal, so they they go through a shedding process, just like your dog does, mm -hmm. um, where a lot of their fur is exchanged, and so that that um, tracker rod should just fall off. And there's a little note on it. It's like find this, return it to Noah. But it's it's a GPS thing, so it's sending a signal to a satellite, and it's uploading the data, and we can follow around. And if you go online, you can actually look up the. Uh, the maps where they show where all the seals are that have been tagged. <laughs> and a lot of people like, I remember we were sending that information off to school kids and they're able to like track a seal. Oh, that's which cool. Is but like, I love that, that job because here I am, I'm on the ship and I'm, I'm trying to maneuver the ship around the ice. Um, there's wind to worry about because it's moving the ice around. It moves the ship around. We're level to the ice. We're a big sail. The ice is less of a sail. Yeah. Um, we got to deploy these scientists so that they can get the boats in the water. They're not getting crushed by the, you know, the ice flows that are coming in. And you have to like manage your navigation through these areas so that like if the wind changes direction, it doesn't close in around you and trap the ship in the ice. And we're not exactly, we're not an icebreaker and this is all just floating pack ice. Right. Mm -hmm. So, we could easily get stuck in there. So there was, there was definitely a need to be as safe as possible and work on the edges and not go too far in, you know, whereas the coast guard cutter would just go right through it, you know, yeah. <laughs> it would just it wouldn't be a problem. And in fact, that project traditionally has been done on NOAA ships. And then one of the, the coast guard icebreakers, the Healy, which works in the Arctic and they, they would go up into much deeper, thicker ice and then just stop and they're okay. They just hang out and then they would, when they could deploy the scientists and yeah um well so it's it's a partnership on that program well i think it's great that the uh the scientists got deployed with na you know native inuits and that you've, you've got people that know what they're doing uh to 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 kind of uh capture these animals because I, I remember reading so i was on Tolly moore out of uh out of long beach and we would sail all around the channel islands and hit santa barbara island as well which is the smallest of the channel islands 
and a family used to live out there. And then I think they did sheep ranching out there and just, just you know, destroyed all the native environment, of course. But they also did a couple other fun, like funny things. And I, I remember seeing this picture of the mother and she has this double barrel shotgun and it's, she's right like a foot. She's a foot from the face of a giant ele male elephant seal. And it's like the seals like up on its haunches, you know, it's just like, yeah. bam. And what they had done, they'd been hired by some museum or some science group or whatever. I don't know. Um, in the early, this was, would have been early 1900s uh, because they thought the elephant seals were going to go extinct, which was a pretty logical thought, I, you know, for what, from what they knew. So they're like, well, let's kill a few of these things, and that way at least we've got, you know, we'll tax, you know, do taxidermy, and at least we'll have some samples, quote unquote, samples of these animals. So they went down there with these scientists. They shot like I forget how many, seven or eight, in what they thought was the last colony on the planet, and then they realized too late that they're so darn big that they couldn't get a single one onto the boat apparently that's what i read that's what i read and that's the account i read so i'm going off that account i read i don't know how true it is but thank god there was another colony um i forget where exactly and then basically all of our elephant seals are are from those two colonies so we got the humanity got very very lucky now we have those giant snotty you know obnoxious animals but they're really cool um, yeah, but at if least I, the, at least the northern hemisphere elephant seals, uh, they they yeah they came that close. They they were on the brink for sure. Yeah, we've we've taken a lot of species close and brought them back. Uh, I just saw some uh, articles in Oregon. Uh, they now have sea otters on the coast of Oregon again, which they were wiped out to extinction by fur hunters. I mean, wow, sea otters yeah. have the most dense, beautiful, luxurious fur of any any marine mammal and and to have them back in oregon is really awesome um i'll tell you what i've seen just in my career so i started working in alaska in 2006 and until my last you know like uh my summer probably my last trip was in september up there the sea otters in alaska have exploded in population like it was rare to see a sea otter in 2006 and now when we sail into Kodiak Bay, you know, to go into the Coast Guard base or the town pier, there are sea otters everywhere. And it's really like super encouraging and happy to see, you know, like a, a native species like that rebound and do really well. And they are, they're thriving and they're, they're fun to watch. They're, they're really cool. Um, not going to lie. They're, <laughs> they're one of my favorite uh, critters to watch they just kind of float there and they watch us sail by and if we get too close to them they just swim away um they're it's really nice to see that and i've seen walruses i've seen all different species of seal and sea lion uh, the stellar sea lions are and elephant seals are two of the largest marine mammals uh the pinnipeds and them and walruses it's amazing how big they are yeah they're like 1800 pound see dogs essentially they act in a lot like big lazy dogs and and uh um, the, the stellars really you cool. mean or? the stellar sea lions yeah. yeah i've i've actually um dove with them a lot on you know in kodiak you'll be diving working on like i don't know checking zincs or cleaning transducers cutting lines out of the propeller if you picked up some fishing gear like derelict fishing gear or something and you'll be just diving there doing your work and you get this weird feeling like 
you're being watched. Like, <laughs> humans have a sixth sense. They really do. And you're just like turning and looking over and there's a sea lion head. And these stellar sea lion heads are big. They're huge. They're, they're, they're called sea lions for a reason. They're like as mm-hmm. big as lions. And he's just sitting there mm-hmm. looking at you. And you obviously are your regulator. You're like, <gasps> you know, like <laughs> blow out a ton of bubbles. And they kind of smile funny and then swim away. Like, I, I got him to make the bubbles. You know? <laughs> and you're like, they're, they're not a hazard or danger. They're just around. They're kind of playful yeah. sometimes. The I've had, I've had harbor seals kind of like nip and play with my fins. And they're much more like, they have a very attitude like a, you know, like a puppy dog. But the stellar sea lions are definitely bigger predators, and they're very much to be respected. And, but they're very interested in the divers. They're probably more curious to see if we just have food. Because in Kodiak, all the fishing boats come in, and they offload the fish. And any fish that fall in the water, there'll be a stellar sea lion ready to go, you know, <laughs> just like waiting. And I've seen videos of them jump up the trawl ramps and onto the fishing boat. And, and guys with, like, brooms trying to, like, no, no, get off the boat, you know. Uh, but... Uh, it's also really interesting is they'll be snoozing. They sleep at the surface kind of floating mm-hmm. like logs and you'll just come down to the dock and we'd have to like make sure when we undocked and docked that, you know, there weren't any in the area. We'd have to like try to make some noise on the ship, something to kind yeah. of like alert them that we're leaving. You don't, you don't want to interact with them, but there'll be days like they were there. And then five minutes later, I'm gone. Mm-hmm. And you're like, where'd they all go? They all just disappeared like that. And then you look out to the Harbor and you see some orca fins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And man, as big as those guys are, they are terrified of the orca. They do not yeah. stick around. They they go and find the darkest places to hide. Yeah. You know, where the orca can't get them. Oh, yeah. I, well, the wildlife, wildlife up in Alaska is just it's out of this world. And it's definitely worth protecting. And, and I'm, yeah. I'm happy to have been part of that process. That's brilliant. That's great. Man, a random story. My my wife always tells a story about her dad down in New Zealand. They were on the beach, and they they thought it was a beached whale, and it turns out it was a uh, it, it was uh, I, I think they get to be about four or five thousand pounds, but it was an elephant seal. So initially they thought it was a whale, and then they thought it was dead. And so I guess the dad went up and like poked it. <laughs> And this and this it wasn't dead. It was it was asleep, and this thing just got up and was very angry. Um, yeah. yeah, so don't don't poke a, a seal that you think is gone. Like, no, no, no. Not an elephant seal. No. Don't, don't do that, ever. My, my, my brother made that mistake with a, an alligator in Florida. Oh, my gosh. About the same thing. Oh, yeah. They're... He went up and kicked it. Oh, bad idea. Bad. Yeah, he, wow. he, thought, it was, he thought it was dead. I'm like, Chris, they're like yeah. lizards, man. They, they get out in the, in the sun, and they just sit there, and they close their eyes, and yeah. they're sunning themselves. They're trying to warm up. It's like... Yeah, yeah, they, they no, survived the I dinosaurs. Really... Like, like they, they can yeah. freaking sit there for hours and weeks. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Yeah, seriously. Like, yeah, no, that that was a mistake. He's like, yeah, no, I learned really quick. I ran real fast. He's like, yeah, yeah, good one. Um, so I, I gotta ask you: Have you ever seen the series The Terror? Oh, so it's a, uh, it's I know of the terror. Yeah, it's about uh, the Franklin yeah. expedition that that failed. Yep. It's it's kind of a pseudo. It, I mean, it was well done. It was really really well done, actually. I thought, but uh, you haven't so, seen that series. No, I haven't. I'd really like to see that because it's. Uh, I know of it. I know of the history of it, and it was trying to go through the Northwest Passage. Yeah. And that same ship actually went to Antarctica before that. Oh, I didn't the, know the that. Erebus. Yeah, the Erebus and the Terror. 
I can't remember which uh, expedition they were, but they went down and there are two volcanoes on Ross Island where I was uh, down near McMurdo, mm-hmm. Mount Erebus and Mount Terror. And they're named after the two ships. Wow. And so, so that cool. ship, that ship was into Arctic research and then eventually went up there and, and sank and they, the crew, some of the crew ended up, Walking back, if I believe correctly, back to civilization. Yeah, uh, no, none of them made it back. Yeah, that. So, so my understanding of it is they they were stuck in the ice. There's some thought now, just just looking at the weather data. Um, there's some thought that the ice just never thawed that next summer. So they literally were stuck in the ice for, for the entire freaking time, and then then they got onto. Um, they, they they took at least a couple sled boats, and so we have there's like little you know little bits of information that the the you know the English you know the, the Europeans left behind. There's some stories also from the Inuits as well, um, but basically uh, to to history's knowledge, every single last one of them died, so they did not make it. And and it was weird because um, I you know I kind of went through a little after listening after watching the terror. Which is a really good series, folks. You should definitely watch it. Um, after watching, it, I kind of want to know the actual history, and so I was looking up little bits here and there. And and there was um, on one website they were talking, they listed off all the things that they found because I guess they found one of the uh, boats that they had that they had converted to a sled. So they converted one yeah. of their their rowboats to a sled. You know, but but these are big boats. These are not like you know little rowboats. These are like 20, 20 I forget how many feet, but it was you know significant size. And but they found just stuff that was not survival worthy. Like like it was just weird. Like like so one of them was a book. It was the Vicar of oh I forget the name of it. I actually bought the book because I found it in a used bookstore. And I'm like oh this is so it's like this funny little Victorian era story you know book. It's like novel. And just like why would you bring that if you're literally in survival mode? So so it's very fascinating. Um, we'll obviously never know. I don't think what was truly going on in their heads. But this, this little series kind of, you know, in, in a fantasy, not fantasy, but like in a yeah. pseudo historical way, kind of delves into some of, you know, what might've been in the thinking. And it, it, it was, well, I thought it was well done personally. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, no, it's, it's cool. I, I've definitely, it's on my, my, my list of things to, to watch. I want to see that for sure. But that might be, I remember, oh, yeah, I remember, <laughs> I remember when they discovered the wreck too, the wreckage of yeah. it in 2008, and uh, I remember watching the footage because, you know, I'm a I'm a diver and a, you know a, a sailor and so like and, and historian and and I love shipwrecks and discovering of shipwrecks and so I I, I like I, I saw that they found it I watched that whole thing it was like so fascinating. Well, um, yeah, and I wonder if they got I, any clues from that. I, I hope they did. You know, some more clues, but but I wonder if yeah. If, it's oh, definitely sorry. Doing, worth doing some research in for sure. With, with um, maybe watching the terror that series in the Arctic, it, it might be kind of like reading the perfect storm or, or watching that movie when you're in a freaking storm, like probably, <laughs> I don't know if that bad luck or just a bad idea. I read the perfect storm when we were in pretty bad seas and I'm like, ah, this is cool. <laughs> but, yeah. but it was, it was a weird feeling. Yeah, no, there's been a couple times that I've read about shipwrecks and, and sinking while I'm underway. And I'm just like, why am I doing this? But it was like, you know, like it just got to that part of a story and you're yeah. just like, oh, man, you know, and it's 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 kind of like kind of a weird this is this is odd. I'm, I'm here underway on a ship and sitting in my rack and. 
now, hearing weird noises and the water go by and, and reading about somebody else who's having a way worse day than I am. <laughs> have you ever um, have you ever put any thought or are maybe there are actual contingency plans? I don't know. But, you know, what if a free like what if the boat got iced in? You know, like, like, is that a contingency plan? Is there something where it's like, could that even so, happen in this day and age? So actually, um, the Polar Code came out recently. It's a, it's a new uh, IMO code, Polar Code. And it has, it has a lot of, of the planning and contingency for that kind of stuff. Now that, now that we're doing much more like uh, ecological uh, tourism mm-hmm. in the Arctic, it's becoming... You know, not only is global climate change opening up these areas that have traditionally been iced in for longer, you know, people are getting an interest in the like Northwest Passage. I think they're going to open up cruise ships going through there. Then it's all really high latitude stuff. Oil exploration is getting bigger in those areas. And so the need to have those contingency plans uh, was recognized by IMO or the International Maritime Organization. And they came up with Polar Code. And Polar Code outlines or outlines a lot of the things you got to do to a ship to make it safe for that. So, like uh, adding enclosed lifeboats that can also double as shelter, and having 360 degree searchlights so you can look for ice around the vessel. Um, and it's definitely um, on the horizon for the NOAA fleet to add those aspects and safety features into our fleet. However, we, we mitigate a lot of that by just being in the Arctic areas in the summertime versus the wintertime, you know? And so there's, there's, there's definitely contingency, like it's definitely stuff that we worry about when we set up a cruise or project, we got to plan for all those kind of things. Um, some of the fun stuff that I was like researching when I was on the polar star, cause part of the thing was when I was in the polar stars looking at polar code and how it applied uh, to NOAA fleet and, I was researching like all these different techniques you can use to keep the vessels from, you know, getting stuck in the ice or Mm. like parts. So you think about it, like uh, your hose, your your water hose, washdown hose for your ship will freeze solid, you know, when you get into certain temperatures and how, how do you, how do you fix that? You have to insulate it. You have to put heat trace on, you have to run electricity through certain parts of your ship you never did before to heat it up to keep it from freezing or yeah you, um, you'd almost well, want an interior well yeah okay yeah it's it's interesting. Yeah. how about how about your freshwater tank what are you going to do to keep it from freezing yeah you know so there's yeah there's there's a lot of these these things you have to think about um and one of one of the the, the more unique and novel ideas that i thought was hilarious was they would put aerators on the hull um, some of the big icebreakers, the Russians and Norwegians, they do this. They blow bubbles and they create a bubble layer between the hull and the, and the as it comes up the hull into the surface. And the agitation of the bubbles moving across the hull helps keep ice from forming against the hull. Okay. And it's just like, wow, who thought of that? That's a great idea. <laughs> but it works. And it's weird. You just blow air. Just blow mm-hmm. more bubbles, you know, and create this cloud of of uh, bubbles around your boat that helps keep the ice forming against the hull. And I was like, wow. And this is some of the stuff I was reading up on while I was uh, going down to Antarctica and thinking about stuff and how that applied to, you know, um, the NOAA fleet and how we could implement it and make things safer. Um, and that was, that was a really interesting one. There was like other stuff like 
uh, and actually my, my ship, uh, the, the NOAA ship Oscar Dyson at the time had implemented some stuff. It was built before Polar Code had come out. It was built in 2005 and or launched in 2005. And so it had some features because they knew it was going to the Arctic, but it, in working in colder areas that I thought were really, really cool. Um, they, the windows on the bridge were heated. And so ice wouldn't form on them. They okay. actually had a, a, a really nice, in fact, you could almost heat the bridge by just the windows. You turn those heaters on and they would get warm enough. They'd conduct enough heat that is like, you could feel it, um, which is really good. The bulkheads on certain parts of the ship had their aluminum and they'd have a, uh, a heat trace uh, just on the inside of the aluminum. And then they had insulation. And so you could electrify that heat trace and it would warm up. So the bulkheads were heated and it was really fascinating. You could actually see when there was a section that had died or wasn't working and we had to go replace it because like you'd have the whole bulkhead of aluminum that conducts heat really well. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's all clean and clear. The rest of the rails are all covered in sea ice, but there's one square of sea ice just stuck there randomly. It's like, Ooh, <laughs> that one, that one's not working. We got to fix it. And so we, we have these, these, uh, these techniques that we started adding and there's a research ship that's, uh, part of the University of Fairbanks, Alaska, the Sekuliak, which means uh, first year ice. The, the word Sekuliak uh, is an Inuit name for first year ice. And it's the ice that forms, sea ice that forms in the, in, like in one year. And then if it floats around for a while and then gets snow on it, then it becomes multi-year ice. But first year ice, new ice. Um, and they, they were built with a ton of, of things to help allow them to work in in the ice and they're actually got an ice breaking hull they can i think it's like up to five feet of ice they can break through it's not like as big as the polar star or the Healy, but they can they can move through some ice if they need to and they have like all the exterior vents and pipes and you know like the outside fire stations they are all covered in insulation and heat trace and they're all really well set up for that they actually have something called ice radar hmm. so it's a radar unit that's tuned specifically to pick up ice not ships but ice <laughs> which was really fascinating because like i'd worked up in the ice and it is sometimes harder to find these floating pieces of ice you have to tune your radars just right but they had a, a radar with specifically the frequency of it was really well tuned to finding the ice so like there are a lot of contingencies that you can throw in to help help modern stuff that can help you navigate through ice and be safe in the ice and survive things like that. If you got caught in the ice, there's, there's icebreakers all over the world. Um, there was a, a year where all the whaling ships got caught up in the Bering sea in ice. And there was a huge, I can't remember, but I think it was in the 1800s, but there was a huge effort in the United States coast guard, uh, to go up and rescue all these whalermen they were trapped in the ice. Mm -hmm. And so just, there was like a quick freeze and they all, like all these ships were just trapped up there and they did, I think they got nearly everybody out of there wow. and then had to go up and get their ships later once the Springs came. Uh, wow. That'd be, that'd be a neat one to do an episode on. I'll have to look into that. Yeah. Well, neat. Well, Carl, before, before I let you go, uh, so speaking of history, uh, can you tell, we were talking about that rock that you mentioned, I believe somewhere off California, Ocean City, was it? Or, um, yes. There was a hydro. You you were doing a survey of this rock that had been involved with a bunch of wrecks, and 
you were comparing the data to what the historical data was, which was very old, I believe. Yeah. So um, the hydrographic fleet. So we do a lot of studying or, or, or surveying of areas that were either surveyed a long time ago or haven't been surveyed. And and it's really fascinating that and this rock was uh, was a very, uh, very good example of that, of how well the surveyors that preceded us with technology that was pretty basic, like they they would set up a a base station somewhere, basically a tower that they would try in the known position that they would fix with very well with a sextant. And then they would they would triangulate all of their other soundings to that location and then be able to like mark it down in these books and make, you know, charts from this. And they were using lead lines to get the depths. And so basically a lead line is a piece of rope that's marked at certain intervals to denote how deep the water is. And on one end, there's a lead weight. And on the very end of that, there's a little alcove that stick something sticky like tar or tallow. And they would throw this thing into the water, mark the depth, pull it up, and then they could see what the bottom type was. Like, did it have a shell in it? Was it sand? Was it gravel? Was it mud? And they clean it off and then throw it again. And so these guys were working out of rowboats at the time that they were doing this. They were using sectants and octants and um, shooting like lines of position and to get their fixes from that base station and then marking where all these dangerous rocks are. And they were spot on. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's amazing how often we go to a place and we're making a new nautical chart and the historical data from like the 1800s is, you know, like really close, like accurate and you're like man these guys really do what they're doing like modern technology we're doing a multi-beam and we're getting a, a you know so many data points per foot so yeah. that we're getting our square inch we're getting like super high-res 3d modeling images of the ocean floor that's living up to the the data that they said they said at this point this depth was like at this tide was like 30 feet and we're like we get there and it's like at modern technology it's like 30 feet point one, you know, like it's just like so close. Like, and so like, it's, it's really cool to know that like they, they have this exacting standard and they did such a good job yeah, making it the ocean safe, you know, and there's there are areas where the bottom topography changes a lot and you have to go back and study again. And there's no way that they were going to be super accurate. There were like after or pre 1964 earthquake in Alaska, everything changed. And so we're up yeah. there doing it. And even the Russian, data is pretty good like <laughs> we have charts where the data that's on the charts from the russian explorers you know that were up there and um and they like they did a really good job everybody back then was very concerned very very uh precise in their measurements and yeah and uh i love seeing that that's really cool um to know that the, the people that went before us did such a good job oh, what a neat feeling very neat yeah Awesome, Carl. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, do this interview. Uh, I got to tell you, in addition to your promotion to being commander, you have also earned a badge because this is the first interview I've gone through where vomiting and puke has not been mentioned. <laughs> oh, oh, man. So we could, we could, I got stories. Like I'm sure. Every, every sailor does. Every sailor does. Wow. Well, all right. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I. I don't know if I like earning that badge because I mean that's a that's a big part of uh, 
uh, you know, being a sailor is like, it is. you know, it's, it's funny too. Somebody <laughs> told me, somebody told me that, you know, who's a true sailor is when you can go out to sea with somebody and they get seasick, but they still want to do it. You know, like everybody <laughs> does at some point, but right. somebody who like gets seasick a lot, but still wants to do it. That's yeah. a true sailor. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, uh, that's dedication for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking your time to do the interview. And and hopefully we'll get to do this again. I feel like, honestly, we just scratched the surface in, in a lot of this stuff. And, you know, yeah. I want to hear more more stories, more of the inside stuff. Uh, but we'll, we'll do it some other time, I think. Um, but, yeah, thank you. Congratulations again on your promotion. Yeah, thank you. And, yeah, uh, just that was official yesterday. So uh, pretty excited about that. And the rest of my, my group, the cohort that got promoted, everybody's really excited. That's wonderful. Well, stay safe out there. Have fun. Um, thank you, folks, for listening to this. Uh, that was uh, Carl. Uh, what's your last name, Carl? Carl Rhodes. Yep. Carl Rhodes. That was Carl Rhodes, uh, Commander uh, Noah. What was your designation? Kanoa, Noah Commander? <laughs> Noah Commissioned Officer Corps. No Commissioned Officer Corps. Well, there we go. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the smallest uh, branch of the Uniformed Services of the United States. There's, there's a very small number of us but we we drive the NOAA research ships all right awesome and it and it sounds like you guys don't even have an inferiority complex which is a miracle so that's that's great <laughs> no I guess they're so different yeah. anyway. well so so something that I didn't mention is that we're we're not just uh, sailors but uh, a small portion of us are also pilots oh um, so the hurricane hunters that NOAA flies, you'll see the pilots. So the NOAA commission officers are either pilots or sailors with with the the science background, um, which is pretty cool. And I can neither confirm or deny the pilots having inferior complex. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Well, thank you, folks, for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed this. Uh, please, uh, you know, please buy my kids' book if you get a chance. Uh, you probably know now where to get it. Uh, GraceCapman.com. Grace Capman in the world is the book. Uh, support me on Patreon if you get a chance. Thank you for listening and wishing everybody out there a fair winds and a following sea.